0: Welcome back, this is Liz from Ph. Divas. This week we're going to show you an episode um, from our live show that we did last week. We gave a keynote speech at the Agency and Solidarity Conference at Cornell. We're very excited about that. And as a plug, if you like what we do, if you like hearing us talk, feel free to invite us to your college. Send us a message on any of the social medias, Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitter, and our email is lizenzion Liz at gmail.com. Here's the show. Okay, so we're really lucky. We have Liz and Zion for Ph.D. today, so I guess you can start with Liz, and the, these descriptions are by them, um, too, so it's like... Oh, two. really? Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, I could have written one for you, too. <laughs> it Liz sounds Wayne, What? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Liz Wayne is currently a postdoc at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, having received her Ph.D. at Cornell in biomedical engineering. She wants to understand how to use the immune system to target cancer metastasis. A huge advocate of women in science, Liz was the chief organizer for the Northeast Conference for Undergraduate Women in Physics conference in 2013. And her awards include the Alice and Constance Cook Award in recognition of her work improving the climate for women in Cornell. She is a Mississippi native and studied physics at the University of Pennsylvania. And Zain Yeo is a proud Chinese Canadian and has recently defended her dissertation in English. Zain has been a voting member for the humanities in the GPSA for the last five years and has also served as vice president of operations among other front of service. Zain currently is currently on the modern language association committee on the status of graduate students in the profession. She has won an SSHRC grant for her research as well as a Moses called Tyler Essay Prize for American Studies and the Houston um, and Daisy Wood Memorial Award. She works on intersections of race, gender, and sexuality through histories of science and law in long 19th century, in long 19th century American literature.
1: Thank you. <laughs> and now,
0: No, that was great. We couldn't have written it better ourselves. (laughs)
1: Um, (laughs) Uh,
0: So um, we first wanted to thank you guys for inviting us and also thank the people who are supporting this program, including, and I have the list, the Latino Studies Program, Asian American Studies Program, Cornell Union for Disabilities, um, and the La Asociación Latina. So we'd like to thank everybody for um, having us here.
1: Yeah. I would also, of course, like to acknowledge that um, Cornell and Ithaca is on uh, the, the land of the Cayuga Nation. And obviously, there's so much labor, unpaid labor, often unrecognized labor of different forms that goes into this this university and also into these t- this type of work. And so thank you so much to everyone um, who contribute to that. And yeah, we owe you a lot. Yeah. So now that all the, the great stuff is out of the way. Um. <laughs> so we thought that. We didn't want to have this be a conventional keynote i feel like so many conferences that i've been to like the keynote is like this you know this really important person that comes out and like tells you what the state of the field is but that's not the way that we work and the way so we it's not like we didn't organize things we have um the structure of what we want to talk about today but the way we're going to do this is how we do our podcast which is as a dialogue and again from people from two different very different experiences me and the humanities from canada She's from Canada. Guys. I know. You can't, this is can't say it specifically <laughs> Toronto. Thank you. But she doesn't like Drake. I don't. I did not say I don't like Drake. <laughs> okay. like, anyway, uh, it always
0: comes up. Like when we say we have a divide, it's always like I'm from Canada, and then she starts talking about everything else. Anyway. <laughs> so let's just get it out in the air. It's done. Canada. Yeah. So we we're the PhDivas, Um, and. We're going to have a few sections. So the first is going to be, wait, dramatic hair roll. Oh, sorry. There you go. Respectability (laughs) politics. Um, So in here, we want to talk. actually have a mini conversation about respectability politics. And um, a lot of these things are going to be, again, like, well, we didn't mention it, but friendship is activism, and how we as friends use that as a platform to support each other in the various programs that we do.
1: Yeah, because I think that, okay, there's this joke that we're so used to hearing the, after someone does something racist or homophobic, whatever, they're like, but my best friend is whatever, right? But then, like, what is the consequence if actually people took it actually seriously? Like, what if you were actually friends with that person? First of all, you wouldn't say that shit. You wouldn't do that shit. But also, like, if we take, if we, perhaps another way, a good way of thinking about allyship is allyship also perhaps an extension of the type of, responsibility and affection that you would have to a friend and that's way of thinking of it on a more political scale. And perhaps friendship can be a real serious good friendship can be the seed of the beginning of what should be a type of good allyship and coalition building.
0: Right. Right. So that's what we're gonna that's what we think that we do through the podcast. Um, so one of the things we we wanted to mention was respectability politics and the idea um, when the way I was thinking about this is that um, we do our work, and we are who we are in our professional spheres, but there's often always this way in which you get judged by other people um, based on like, stereotypes or what people think you're supposed to be, and there's always this divide between you as a person and then how people see you in that sphere and how they're trying to judge you in that sphere.
1: Yeah, and I think that for example for us it goes even to like the title of our podcast PH Divas, that I think there's a sort of a little bit of attention that on the one hand I think what we've talked about this quite a bit in our podcast but how do we be, or how do we be proud of the fact that we managed to survive as women of color in the academy to be able to defend our theses but also not like reify getting a higher degree in higher education and being at an institution like Cornell as some sort of like inherent marker of worth, And I think perhaps this is a question for all of us as we do activism at a university like Cornell, how do we see it as an opportunity, as a type of, I don't know, a type of opportunity that we can leverage as opposed to like some sort of like coronation of like this narrative of like, oh, you're our inner genius, right? Like how do we then also go back to our communities and with, in a way that doesn't like have this halo respectability politics around us that like you know it was, it was Cornell that suddenly gave us yeah what made us like better. And I, don't, as I don't know if
0: I know the answer. I know for me it's there was this point where so I studied physics and I was often the only woman in my class and the only um, black person and I used to feel like I had to um, represent people and I had to kind of hide things and I I was acting white and people are, people I would get told I was acting white as, as a kid. Because I don't, because of the way I speak. Um, it's, I mean, I'm from Mississippi. There's no accent. I didn't get rid of it. There was no like hazing that happened to me. I just never had an accent. And I started to realize eventually that I was hiding a part of myself when I was in lab. Um, that I wasn't really being who I would have been if I was with my friends. Um, because I was afraid of what they would say or because I would hear people say things already about what they perceptions of blackness, um, ghetto, stereotypes like that. Um, or even as far as wearing my hair, um, like wearing my natural hair, um, having to explain what that means to people and these, these judgments. And so there was this point in time where I decided to be myself in those fears. And what that meant was um, if I got loud, I was loud, but I'm not angry. Okay, so I had to, (laughs) Um, I just have an opinion. So I'm just going to tell you what that is, or I can be funny, or I can do whatever it is. And I actually became more comfortable in those fears doing that, but it was definitely a risk. Um, And there were also moments where um, people would say, let's say there's the stereotype, and they're like, oh, Liz, you're not like other black people. Um, And then I have to say, well, yeah, I am. You're talking about my brother. You're talking about my aunt. You're talking about my friend. Um, and you can't talk about these things as if I'm not here. You can't demonize them and support me at the same time. So um, I think it's a definitely question that we all have to face. And in some ways, learning how to be comfortable in your own skin and showing who you are to everyone else is going to be helpful. Because, and the last thing before we move on to this, but. I thought about the other way, and that is, if I never showed my classmates who I was, then they might actually walk away thinking black people are this way, or there's no problem. And so I felt like, you're my friends, so I'm gonna talk to you and try to get you to understand what
1: you said might be offensive or hurtful. Yeah, I think what's was difficult, perhaps an extension of this problem respectability of politics, how do we avoid just being labeled one of the good ones that yeah. gets, gets be, that held up over like the rest of people from, whatever demographic you're seen as being. In my case, of course, studying English literature, of course something that a lot of people um, of Asian descent have to hear is like, you know, they'll be really surprised that you speak English really well. Well, actually, English is my first language. And for a long time for me, I ended up internalizing this sort of separation that, you know, of course I'm the Asian who knows good English. I'm gonna actually become an English major and do a PhD in English. And then it took me a lot of, I guess, soul searching, but also like, say, going through post-colonial theory as well as, like being having interest in like African American literature and other forms, that allow me to see that as much as it was a, d- a defense mechanism to claim English or literature itself, creates a space for me. At the same time, in doing so, I I ended up sort of like reproducing a lot of the colonialist racist constructs that go into um, a literature department and a language department, mm-hmm. and that pre- uh, implicitly I was creating a divide between. Myself as like the type of good Asian that could speak English and perhaps would be you know properly assimilated as opposed to like someone who h- would have an accent, which would be like members of my family. And that's something that I think we have to actively work against um yeah. in and how we're perceived. Yeah. I mean like I maybe another way to th- also think about respectability politics is like is this the outfit that you'd wear to a conference in your field? Well it or- is now. Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, but like, your feel is more formal. Well, I guess, like, I wouldn't, I, I was actually thinking this, cause I, I, really, I love dressing up, but there's this almost way that I think, at least on the humanities side of the academy, you're supposed to dress nice, but not too nice, because if you're too nice, then, like, obviously you're not a serious academic, and especially if you're too feminine, then, you know, like, that's excessive, and that's mm-hmm. not considered to be, like, truly intellectual. Um, so if I, like, wore this, for example, this for a conference like I'd have to put a blazer on it because you know blazer is the way that you like dress anything up like you, it becomes a little bit more gender-neutral mm-hmm. like I think that <laughs> and I think that there's almost like this this is joke that like at least in humanities like there's a sort of like outfit that a lot of academic women wear where it's like you know you wear a dress that's like a primary color but not, not too bright and like a lot of us like wear scarves and I was just thinking about how the world is the scarf like on the one hand it has like this pop of color because that's the one time you could like express some sort of personality mm-hmm. but at the same time it covers your breast. So, so at the same time you have to be like respectable so it's like
0: you're running for president or something, yeah or yeah like there's
1: like this weird sort of navigation of like drawing attention to the chest but also like obscuring it at the same time all right then, stop looking okay like you the chest. <laughs> you, you're just jealous right now oh. <laughs> all right yeah i'm jealous
0: <laughs> hair roll please there you go <laughs> Um, so our studies ourselves so there's what we study there's what you do so think about what are you here for what are you studying and then there's what you do outside of that and then there's worlds colliding Um, I was actually just thinking about how when I was an undergrad I was in this group called the race dialogue project so we would talk about race and class and sexism and all these sorts of issues Um, And I just remember I was taking part in this, it wasn't a protest per se, but it was a very public, we were yelling things, I don't remember what they were anymore, maybe I am blocking that out. But it was weird having my classmates then see me doing that thing that they had never seen me do before. um, And seeing me in this different way. Um, And so how do you navigate that? How do you make them
1: both exist for you? What do you do? Well, I guess, Did I describe that like, properly enough? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that perhaps also a question that happens for um, a lot of you guys is like, say, I know uh, a lot of undergraduates here it, go to Cornell because of the pre-med program. But how do you balance like an interest in pre-med and getting all those requirements done with an interest in social justice? Like, how do you possibly have time to fit in this major minor? Like, also, do you? I think we often then feel this sort of need to take certain things or do certain things because we we know that. But the type of politics and type of activism that it embodies. But like, but for example, say like I do literature and I'm able to study literature and study race, gender, sexuality together. Um, and so for me, what I do is very much tied to my my research mm-hmm. and my personality. But for Liz, like she works on on cancer, but no way is it more separate for her from who she is. But it becomes, I think it becomes difficult. On, Depending yeah. on what discipline, what. Are any of you guys like STEM people?
0: Yeah, so. Oh. So, <laughs> so um, I don't know about you, but even doing this podcast as an example is something where I'm always afraid of how faculty might look at it because it's not. Sometimes there's this unspoken thing that science people aren't supposed to talk about anything that isn't science related. You're not supposed to be doing anything. You shouldn't have an opinion, you should have some facts with an interval of confidence for what you're about to say. And so I'm always wondering, okay, who's listening to this? Did I go too far? Did I overstep my bounds when I say, like, women are nice and awesome? Um, (laughs) And uh, that's like a very simple thing, but it can obviously extrapolate. Or um, we just did a, a podcast about unions and about how grad students don't get treated very well. Because they later. don't exist as human beings, and so how do I say that when my advisor controls my entire life and has and owns everything? It can literally say, "I don't like you anymore." Yeah. So it's very difficult.
1: I think the union, like we're pretty excited. This is our our latest episode. So we interviewed uh, one of the members of Cornell Graduate Students United, mm-hmm. um, and as you may have heard. Cornell, along with all other peer institutions, have now filed amicus briefs um, against the idea of graduate students, students, at private universities, being allowed to organize at all. Um, and so, obviously, this is a very hot topic. And I think one that we couldn't come up right away, but let's like, how do we work within power? For example, like we did get covered by the Cornell Chronicle, but we knew yeah. that the Cornell Chronicle never let us cover something like that. Um, but how do we use, how do we leverage the type of attention that we got from that to then perhaps? draw other listeners that might not hear about the union to yeah. hear an episode like that. Um, yeah. It becomes a very delicate play. Or the fact that like um, your former department like follows us on Twitter, and I was like, oh, they're really good about like retweeting our things, but I was like, will they retweet the one about the union? <laughs> like, what are they gonna, maybe they didn't listen to it, but they did retweet it, which I thought was interesting. So, it's a challenge. It's
0: really, I think it actually is what makes me tick, it's what helps me still do what I do in the lab, because I can be someone outside. I was just gonna say, even my boss, I have a, I have a new boss, and um, I kind of like, as I was driving and leaving my lab, I was like, so I'm not gonna be here, because I'm doing academic work. And <laughs> I just kind of walked away. But. Um, Again, the way I, I see it is, it helps me be a better scientist. And it helps me be more aware, and it helps me communicate. That said, as an undergrad, I didn't have, I didn't feel that way. It was much harder to do that. But doing it helps, and doing it, the practice of doing that helps you um, step by step get better at it.
1: And for some of us, it takes a damn long time. Like I, when I was an undergrad, I would not be in the place that you guys are now. Like again, I was very much. I was majoring, um, specializing in English, and here's a, an embarrassing, like, again, really? this is why, okay, this How is, oh, uh, okay, well, I'll say it, and then you, you'll be able to judge. Um, but, like, in my last year, in my senior year, we don't, this is like, oh, uh, it's not, we don't say this you're in like, Canada. Canada. I'm sorry, but it's true. Um, I said in my theory class, like, I don't think of myself as being mentally like a woman, I think of myself as being more mentally like you a man. You did say that. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Okay. I know. And so that just shows how deeply ingrained like, certain ideas were for me. Like, If I'm going to be like, someone who studies English seriously, like, I have to be a certain type of way. I think a certain type of way. And unlearning uh-huh. that has been quite a process. Um, like, There was a time that I wouldn't have thought about studying anything about race or gender because somehow those are implicitly seen as being lesser. And now I realize the more that I do study it, like, the better a scholar I am. And I feel like it's also a better person I become at the same time
0: i do think when i was an undergrad in physics that, so i don't know if you know any physicists but there's this kind of ethos of physics people are extremely smart naturally inherently so like you don't work hard in physics you just do physics you just exist, and, and it's kind of like yeah, yeah. You know what? If you go to spherical coordinates, the answer is going to be pi because there's symmetry and all that bullshit.
1: And so, but
0: that's kind of how the problems work themselves out. You know, like you do five pages of homework to get that one answer, and then the person who did it right or the professor, the answer key is like no, three lines, and it's the answer. And so there's just kind of idea that you're supposed to be natural and smart, just automatically. Um, that's like the culture of it, and nobody really says that they have a hard time doing it. And I had to learn how to go, no. Or actually, I started listening to other people and realized perseverance is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. There are no physics geniuses, they all worked hard at it. I had to have people, a professor, tell me that, and it, it was very helpful.
1: But it still took a, lot, a while to get into. And I think that perhaps this comes to another aspect of studies that you probably have encountered now, but especially in grad school, like imposter syndrome. There's such a way that because there's such a feeling of imposter syndrome, that people feel the need to perform in such a way in order to perform competence, and then it becomes this very like almost theatrical culture sometimes, at least in like humanities graduate seminars where everyone's talking about like Foucault or Butler or something like that. Like you know, so you can't be the first one who admits that you don't understand what a passage says because like no one wants to be that person, or like it just becomes this sort of absurd space where like every part of you becomes scrutinized even though implicitly you're supposed to also ignore that you have a body in that particular space at that particular time. Yeah. It's, it's just weird.
0: Very true. Head roll. Yes. <laughs> oh, working. Do I start this
1: one? Oh.
0: <laughs> <I could've been laughs> <started> this. <laughs>
1: So here I have um, a quote that I'm rather fond of that I actually used to open a class that I taught last semester. I taught this, I was really excited to teach this class last semester that was called Black Power, Yellow Peril which is about the comparative racialization of African Americans and Asian Americans from the 19th century through the 21st century. Um, and the way I sort of began it, and I think it's just like a useful exercise, is like Sarah Ahmed, for those who might be unfamiliar, is a queer color scholar based in the UK and her work has been uh, immensely influential, but she recently wrote a book called On Being Included, and it's basically analyzing what it means to be a diversity practitioner in higher education, Because. As it may be already obvious to, to some of you guys who've probably been co-opted into this type of role, like once you do type of diversity work on campus, which is important, like the mm. administration is going to call on you to come and like help validate the work that they do, but also you become that one faculty of color, one woman of color. How and many
0: brochure pictures are you on right now?
1: Yeah, like this one. I'm on
0: three, and I know it's going to be like that for at least seven years because you know people don't redo their brochures. Yeah, like you're
1: just going to be your presence is just going to be lingering here for a while, like there's this way that um, people of color and underrepresented minorities in general are just, mm-hmm. are made to be part of this United Colors of Benetton type face of the institution. And so I think that like Sarah Ama gets to this in this uh, really eloquent way that diversity often entails this type of superficial recognition of difference that helps to market a university. Mm-hmm. Um, without actually addressing inequality, but at the same time, like that's often the only way that we can get to the table with administrators. Mm-hmm. And but what does it mean to like, yeah, balance? I guess because it, they're trying to use us as like the face of respectability in a way. But how do we like use that against them and make it work for us? Does that make sense? So before we
0: go and we'll talk about self-care, but to that one thing that I think is important to think about is. There are issues, and you should at some place think, do I, how do, do I have to deal with that issue in particular? Um, and so one thing I think about is, so think again, back, going back to that brochure idea, um, I have known people, you people become good at talking about diversity and dealing with those things because they're actually doing them, right? So th- it becomes like this feed, feedback loop of, I'm good at this because you keep asking me to talk about it, not because I'm inherently better at talking about it. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you that in some ways you need to say, or they're, not you, because it's not all oh, the work you have to do, the idea is that other people can also do that work. Um, so I may be black, but that doesn't mean I have to be the only one who talks about something that's black, and probably an extension of that is that doesn't mean that the other black student in the room is gonna actually relate to me the best. Um, even, I know administrators, administrators here so often they get frustrated when um, people just send them all the black students or all like the Latino students or like, um, whatever um, group you might be a part of um, because they are a member of that community. When they're like, no, my job is admissions or my job is like international student support or whatever it is. That's not my job. You're not doing your job well. Like, you need to actually learn how to support all students because just because we're black doesn't or we're yeah i'm just using that as an example because we're black doesn't mean we're going to have something in common because we're not all alike and i think you guys all knew that
1: (laughs) and it's just like the emotional labor of it like it's a this is again this sort of balance for us that we know it's important work to do but Mm -hmm. it takes its toll on us and like even things like our podcast which is a part of self-care for us like it's not like we're getting paid to do it. It's not like something that would like count as a publication. It mm-hmm. takes time away from what is quantifiable as like yeah. being a good academic. Yeah. But it's still important for us.
0: Yeah. I was just thinking about how in undergrad, um, I remember this one faculty member complaining about some students and saying they weren't working hard enough in their classes um, because they. But the thing was, they it was like their hell week for their pro like their. Event their group, Um, and so there's this way in which um, people invest more time in the activities, almost as a way to cope with the environment that they're in. Um, I'm not really sure. I forgot where I was going with that, but it's okay. The idea is uh, there does tend to be emotional overload as people do that work because you're trying to find a, a space for yourself on campus where you feel welcome. And personal, and because that space isn't there, you try to create it, um, and then you—it's like you're also getting penalized for creating that space. But guaranteed, you'll also then be on another brochure picture because mm-hmm. your student group is doing something cool. And I'm, so I'm thinking about you guys even now—the people who um, who put this conference together and the people who attended. You know, you could be doing classwork right now, or you could be sleeping.
1: You know, whatever,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever is happening. But you're here, and you're. Cause this makes you feel supported in whatever space.
1: Maybe do you want to talk about like type of service or activism that you've known at Cornell or, mm-hmm. done or? What
0: type of service and activism have I done in Cornell?
1: Well I have to say that one thing I always find ironic is like, you know on the slope how they recently made that new monument and like these all these big history um Cornell moments. Mm-hmm. And it includes, I think, the Willow Street Takeover and the establishment of Africana and like, for example, the movement to divest from South Africa. And it's the way that once once moments of activism are conveniently far enough in the past, then it becomes mythologized on the hill. And then you can put it down in granite. And then, you know, and at the same time, like they opened that, that was when what they were trying to. But right now it's in chalk s- on whole I know, Plaza. I know, <laughs> trying to, like last, what happened last semester when they were trying to suppress um, student activists at Cornell. But you know, in retrospect, once, it, like, once history is feeling far away and becomes sanitized, everyone wants to think that they're going to be on the good guy side. Like, I feel like that's one thing, like, at least for me, like when, for example, when I teach slave narratives, it's like, oh, yeah, now, now that we're far away enough, like, everyone's going to be like, of oh, course I'd be an abolitionist. Of course I would help um, people go free, whatever. But then you know, that's not the case at the time, and we are not so far from that moment that yeah. there's similar forms of oppression. Like, it's so easy to think that, of course, I would have known to do the right thing in yeah. the right moment once you don't actually have that decision in front of you.
0: And you know, one thing I worry about is um, I enjoy talking with people. I just enjoy talking. And I enjoy talking with people. And you don't get paid for that work. And so in my PhD, I was really like a center for a lot of people. Like I had at least five undergrads who worked underneath me. And there were just at least 30 other people. We had a large lab who worked in, in that space. And they're all asking me about advice. Some of it was humorous because they were things like, um, I want to talk to this guy, but I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, go on.
1: <laughs> this is interesting. Oh, love.
0: This is this is not what's happening for me right now. But. Um, but so, so some of it's nice, but some of it's also work as you try to think, get them to think about graduate school and the fact that like, nothing's wrong with you, you're just 20. <laughs> <Like> that's just <laughs> what it's like, kind of thing. But that's a lot of work that you don't get paid for, but that could actually mean that you don't get as well, go as far in your classwork in some instances. Um, and right now, this is something that people who are making like maybe two or three years ahead of me are facing as they go for academic jobs um, or any job where they're expecting you, well let's just focus on academia, Mm -hmm. since mentoring I would say should be a part of a professor's job, but quite often for tenure what gets rewarded is publications, right, and talks. And so there needs to be some sort of paradigm change to acknowledge the activism and the service that people are doing for the community and for the students, um, because otherwise you're just gonna self-perpetuate and all the people who aren't doing that service are getting the ones who get these jobs, and they in turn are also not going to care about anything else but their work, and yeah. you know, come back in an undergrad I think. So we're thinking about that. We are supportive because we're hoping that climate changes a little bit, and that we can also be a part of that change, and spreading the love.
1: Yeah, I think it's difficult. For example. Like again, being part of the Graduate Professional Student Assembly to me it seems very different from what I've observed with the essay because like no one cares if you're part of the GPSA like it's not like we actually have to run for elections because it's like it's not glamorous or anything like that. It's like everyone who's just overworked and like we know that the right like we have ideas about the right thing that we want to do but like it's so not recognized. In fact. A lot of people say that their departments actively dissuade them from doing any type of service, any type of activism on campus, um, any type of committee work because you're just supposed to focus on your research. And yet we know like, if you're gonna be a good faculty member, like the service is such a huge part of that, mm-hmm. how can you become a faculty member unless you care about teaching, unless you care about how the greater university works. Like if you just put your nose down and do your research, yeah. um, which is I guess under the Neoliberal University is what they expect us to do because like that's what gets quantified as um, for tenure. It's just, it's not enough, and at the same time, like under the existing system, like it seems really hard to recognize that type of work, because even some things that are dubious, like what awards um, for mentors, for like people, like when there are awards that um, are given for like teaching or uh, for like mentoring people of color, sometimes they go to people that don't don't really deserve it, because sometimes it's used also as a type of cookie. I don't know. Um,
0: Not related to that, but as a side note, I hope that you guys are applying for awards and fellowships and nominating Mm -hmm. other people. Having been in an awards committee, selection committee before, if you don't put your name in, we can't choose. And then the people we choose may not be the ones who we really want. And I think that quite often, we don't put ourselves out there. Let the other person tell you no. I mean, that's the way I think about it. Let the other person say no. But don't say no to yourself before you even ever tried. I really I like this picture. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Frida Kahlo. Um, when I started school at Penn, they had this big art exhibit, and she was they just had a lot of her work at the time. So I always associated with me first starting college, which is also like one of the worst semesters of my life. I think. Well, not the worst, but close. Um, so self care. Um, so how do you? How do you? be an academic, how do you do the work that you do, um, Mind through the politics, the respectability politics that you have mm-hmm. in your work environment and the activism that you do. Um, and how do you be yourself? How do you take care of yourself?
1: How do we self care? What do you, how do you self care? I talk to you, it helps a lot. Friendship, I, I, I don't know, just, I feel like this is just a, a struggle, right? right now like it's hard to be to say that I can give advice as if I'm someone who's been successful at it like of course we have been successful to a certain extent but it almost feels like I don't know the sort of weird way that I feel sometimes that like sometimes our successes make it really easy to gloss over the difficulty of trying to get to this point like oh if if you're able to get through it and become successful at this point if you're able to defend then obviously like your health issues, your mental health wasn't couldn't be that possibly yeah. that bad. That I f- do
0: find very challenging. That people um, seem to gloss over the struggle. So um, there are awards. There'll be grad. There be degree completions and things. But that doesn't mean that it was all happy. Um, I feel like when I grad. Well, I know when I graduated undergrad, I wasn't even proud. I was exhausted. I feel like there was a there's a finish line, and I kind of dragged. I rolled across the finish line and I just passed out right on the other edge of it. And it, so it wasn't like, yeah, mama, I made it. Like everyone, Facebook pictures of everything. Although, I won't, I'm not gonna lie, 2009, that wasn't the biggest thing yet. The, the, not everybody had the camera that faced towards you. So selfies are really, really hard. <laughs> um, but Frida Kahlo does a lot of great selfies. She's the originator of the selfie. I Um But, um, but it's, uh, it's always exhausting. And I actually remember I used to think that I was the only one who got really tired right right in the middle of the semester. Just like, like for me, the semester is I'm excited, I'm awesome, I'm gonna like pass everything, I'm gonna get sleep, I'm gonna go to the gym, awesome, this is gonna be great. And then I don't know, like three weeks in, I'm like, who, what, what, what was I doing last week? I don't remember. It's like everything becomes a daze to me sometimes. And I thought, and then I just got so tired. And then you reset that tired that's combined with apathy where you're like. I don't care, nothing, like nothing in the world matters anymore. I just want this to be done. I thought I was the only one who ever did that. I thought that somehow everyone, people were better at dealing with stress than I was. Um, and so the best advice I ever got was to actually, someone said, well, just start looking at people. Like, stop looking at yourself and just actually look around the room and ask people. And I started to realize that everyone's tired and everyone's stressed and it's not like a me thing. And I think that's how I take care of myself is um, is to check in with myself. So I, I think about, am I, How do I feel right now? All right, no, I'm feeling kind of bad. Okay, I think of myself as a sine function. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> sine, sine, goes up and down. It stays between like plus one and minus one. Sine of x, not any extra stuff. And um, and so I think about how like if you take an average of sine, if it also seems, I know, if it you take an average, it just comes a straight line, right? And if you let's just say like you zoom out. So you're going to see a straight line. So for me, I'm less concerned about whether I'm up or down as to compared to if I'm averaging my normal self. And then I start asking myself, is my average going up? Is it going down? Um, I know that, but that's kind of how I think about, like, what's your sign function look like today? Um, <laughs> but so that's the thing. And so, But it helps me, because if I always feel like I'm supposed to be up, mm-hmm then that's horrible because I'm not always going to be up. And then I'm going to be always disappointing myself because I'm never as happy and perky as I thought I was supposed to be, or as my parents might think I am sometimes. Um, But when I'm down, then the next question becomes, how do I get myself back up? Because I know that if I stay down long enough, it'll become like like this puddle that I can't get out of. So I try to
1: mitigate how far down I go. But there's this sort of balance i feel like this comes to a conversation we're having earlier today about how like with research there's such an importance of downtime like there's so much useless time when you're binge watching a show while you're waiting for something to happen that actually is kind of integral to the process even though it it doesn't seem to necessarily translate into productivity in a quantifiable way but nonetheless it's like you need that time to ruminate and you know digest and metabolize those ideas and like i uh, I binge watched a lot of anime, but I think that, and I think it was useful actually, because I think it actually helped me to to process um, a lot of ideas that I was learning elsewhere. But even, but it wasn't always <coughs> at the time. Yeah, and,
0: and I think this pairs into survival because um, survival is different than self care, because self care is me being like the most important thing to me at that point in time, and survival is recognizing that no one else around me probably cares as much about me as I care. And so how do I live in that sphere? So as an example, um, I may be having a really bad time. My professor, on the other hand, is going to see, not maybe not see it the same way that I see something. Um, so, or my group, like I have to get certain things done. I have to survive this system that I'm in, regardless of how
1: good or bad my self-care is going. Um, I guess like on the I guess like that also becomes this big question that we keep thinking about is like, in terms of like so we think mentoring is really important, but should we like tell anyone who to go to grad school for example? Like survival, mm-hmm. it's that's because like, it's going to be it's going to be rough. It, on the one hand, it's it's important to have good people go through, but at the same time, it can jeopardize so many things yourself, and it might not be the right answer. That's such an interesting question because. Um, so, I hear
0: that childbirth is painful, but that people don't remember after the baby is born. They don't remember childbirth. That's what my friends who've had babies tell me. Um, and I think that in some ways grad school is the same way because now that I'm <laughs> Now that i have done. Like five it, years And of that giving birth birth, that is My thesis has been bound and sent somewhere. I still don't know where it is. Um, <laughs> you sent your child off into the world. I mean. So um, it's on the internet somewhere. Um, but the, I, but I, I guess I'm sort of blanking on it. Now I'm kind of getting kind of like rosy feeling about certain parts of it, certain parts. <laughs> so yeah, I mean maybe that's a different discussion about whether you should or should not do school. I definitely have
1: opinions about it. Um, yeah, I think it also is difficult. It's like choosing which battles you want to fight. Like. I think this, um, for example, an upcoming episode we'll be doing is talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment, for graduate students and faculty, and one big discussion is like there's so many things that we can't publicly say, mm. and it's like which battles do we choose to fight, mm. or do we do we choose to fight this battle or we choose to fight the long battle, do we yeah. wh- what point do we change the system? What if we wait too long to change the system, we end up just becoming a. Part Actually, of that's it.
0: so true. Cause I see, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting the actual struggle. But there were definitely times where I just I was like, I can't deal with this. I don't have the energy. And I actually let things go that were actually important to me. but I thought I would rather have my freedom than put up with this fight. or I, I would rather have um, I need this person on my side, so I need to be a little complacent right now. and I would have to go through other av- avenues mm-hmm. to make myself feel okay. Um, I had lots of friends, actually. Ming-Shi, everyone's happy. <laughs> he's he's also a PhD student. Um, well, no, he's a doctor now. Two chains Um And um, but yeah, Ming-Shi was part of my support system, t- going through the motion,
1: having some support. I feel like another analogy might be like, whenever you get like something like really shitty yell at you, it's Mm -hmm. like when you walk away you could always think of the good things that you want to say and like you could have made it into a moment that could be possibly a teachable moment and you could have really like stood up for your side, but then is it worth the investment in that particular moment? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, and sometimes we have to be okay with it. Mm -hmm. But like uh, last semester I organized this teaching support group for uh, graduate women instructors of color and so many of our conversations were about that because even though we often felt this obligation that because we're women of color are working on, often, writers of color working on issues of race, gender, sexuality, like, oh, we should be the ones who should be so prepared for this stuff, and because we're trying to teach students to do that too, but sometimes we're still as unprepared, but then we feel like when we don't do it, like, the burden's even worse. It becomes extremely exhausting, and somehow, like, making sure that we feel okay with what decision we make, either way, yeah. is incredibly important, but it's still hard.
0: Yeah, I had to learn how to back away from things and sometimes how to say no to things and people. And that was hard for me to do, particularly because I, these are issues I care about. I've now made it known that I like talking about these things, which means that people come to you and they want to talk about things. Um, and sometimes um, it's actually interesting, because thinking about how we interact. I think there are definitely times where I just kind of fall off the face of the earth. Sometimes I'm aware of it. Other times I intentionally didn't answer something. Um, but you
1: with me? No. Oh
0: okay. No, no. That's oh. Well, sometimes it feels that way. Okay. It feels like I wake up, I just like I feel like there's so much going on in my head that all I want to do is not hear anything. Um, and sometimes that's good. It's good for a short time, it's not good if I want to do it for like a month or something like that. Just trying to be aware. I'm trying to think of actual examples of survival, and I think that's really crazy, because my PhD was definitely hard, it was very, very hard, but somehow I can't remember. I think I went through and just, um, I went through and thought, no one knows what this feels like but me, so I need to listen to myself. And if I'm tired, I need to just be tired. And if I'm energetic, I need to be energetic.
1: Or sometimes you need someone that texts you regularly to make sure that you're eating and drinking (laughs) less.
0: (laughs) <laughs> she, yeah, yeah, she does that. You should send me food though, that's a way better. How am I thing. supposed to do that? You know I can't cook.
1: That's why I have a meal plan. Then <laughs> 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 you steal food and you. <laughs> but I ship it down to Chapel Hill?
0: Yeah. Oh, no, no, there's the internet, there's not. You could like um, Grubhub oh, okay. and send it to my address.
1: I guess I guess they don't quite care enough, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I could steal your cookies from the dining hall. Okay, you're, okay. So
0: there's, no, they're already hard in the dining hall, they'll be like dead when they get to me. So not all friends need to do that, <laughs> clearly, but um, it's, I think it's nice to have, um, maybe as a random side note, what was helpful for me was having mentors and having outlets, different spheres of my life. So I think, of people, I think of people as having layers, so not everyone can do the same thing for me. Um, and I kind of learned this the hard way. As an example, I would talk with some faculty, and if I told them that I was struggling with something, they just kind of automatically shut down. Like, you're struggling? Well, maybe you shouldn't be here. I'm like, dude, calm down. I just said, <laughs> <laughs> whoa, 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 I just said this was hard. I didn't say, like, this is bad. But what I had to realize is that this person isn't the one that I should talk about feelings with. But if I have like an ask, this person's probably going to support me in helping with that ask. And so I have layers. So there are people who help me with feelings, and then there are other people who can do other things. And so finding that balance of what people can do for you and what you have to offer.
1: Um, leveraging that. So our final quotation is actually from Liz Wayne herself. PhD. She did. that. I yeah, well yeah cuz I well Liz tweeted this and I thought it was really perfect. Do mm-hmm. you want to read
0: it? I just think it's so 2016 that anybody can say like look at my Twitter, look at my timeline, it's um, quoted by Liz Wayne. Liz Wayne, like one day I'm going to quote myself in like 2016. <laughs> um, Liz said this. Liz was wise. Be like Liz. Um, okay, so the finding your voice. Okay, so one thing I think about is social media and how cool it is, social media, how cool social media is right now. Because the way I see it, um, at least in terms of news, let's just think of a news example. They used to have it, a situation where the media outlets are actually dictating what the stories are. But now, you can go find your own news. And there actually have been times where, if I wanted to know what was happening right now, Twitter was actually way faster than the news media. And in uh-huh. fact, news were actually contacting friends on Twitter to figure out what was happening.
1: Like, uh, for anything, anything with Ferguson, for example, was happening on Twitter? Yeah.
0: Ferguson, like, definitely some of those bigger issues. I actually personally had an issue where um, um, there was, like, a school shooting. Um, and so my friends. So it wasn't on the news yet. I couldn't, like all the news, outlets didn't have it, but my Twitter, my friends were tweeting everything that was happening. Um, so it's a very powerful avenue. And what I've seen happening now is that you have groups who are able to talk to each other on Twitter. You have these stories that can emerge. Um, I've been able to actually find people who I wouldn't have normally had access to. So again, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I am the only black person um, when I'm in my lab or I'm doing science things. Well, now with Twitter, I have access to other people who are also in their own silos, and we can now communicate, and, and we can exchange stories. And I don't, It's so weird, because I never imagined myself to be someone who would say, the internet is my friend, you know? You know how some of that, it sounds like it sounds lonely, like you have, like, what's wrong with you, that you don't have people in your real life, but I also think that there's this interconnectivity that's happening that is really powerful, Um, and it's bigger than myself. And so thinking about how do you find your voice? So now that you have these tools to connect with people and you can make your story, and it doesn't have to be something that was already written for you. I mean, think about how powerful that is, that that people can say, you know what, all the textbooks never have people who look like me or have my experience. Well, now I can go try to find those books and I can make them available to people as an example finding your voice and then figuring out how to use that voice and and go into that space i'd say
1: that um on that note we weren't sure that anyone would listen to us um well, no. I honestly other than like maybe our parents sometimes clicking on it or something like that but now it has been been like like actually getting like messages from people that we don't know or false. Yeah. Like, we'll, sometimes we'll like check our Facebook page and be like, wow, this person isn't friends with either of us. This is so exciting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my so, dad messaged me once and he said, like, oh, Liz, I love it when you swear. It's so funny. <laughs> but, oh, my god. This is pretty bad. And so, so even bad. talking about these things that maybe seem like, like, how is my voice valid mm-hmm. at all? And I think perhaps as students and grad students, we're so used to thinking of ourselves, like, Still in process, or somehow yeah. like not fully formed as academics, or w- yeah. what have you. But nonetheless, like hearing those voices are is so helpful. Not just for like first of all for yourself, but also it's surprising to see how much it ends up resonating with with other people. Yeah. So this quote in particular,
0: I was thinking about um, academia. I don't know if you guys follow things, but you know funding is tight. It's hard for faculty to get jobs and for, pe- for people to get jobs. Like and I think the current economic climate is one in which it feels like pressure, pressure, pressure. You have to be the best, and even though you're the best, you still may not have a job, and you could very well graduate here um, with tons of debt and no job in sight that would ever, ever pay off your loans. Um, So there's this depressing, there's this thing there. Um, And in particular thinking about academia, what I kind of tried to think about it was is that I can shape the future. So, it's, mm-hmm. so academia may not be what I thought it was. It may not be the kind of safe haven, um, happy space that I thought it was, but I can make it that way. I can surround myself with people who are like-minded, and I can promote these ideas, and I can create spheres. Um, I can make a space, a safe space, where other people can also express themselves.
1: Yeah, for um, us, this is like the hope. So this is also part of why we're still in the game, despite. It's still in the game. Because it's damn hard because like, Liz and I want to get to this point where we become professors and we're maybe we'll get the same damn university and we're gonna change that place. We're gonna make it a safe space. We're gonna try and work and make it a better place. You know, Everyone's gonna feel so safe they're uncomfortable. What? <laughs> Are you safe? Are you sure? Come on now.
0: Um, but I, would, I mean, I encourage you to think about those things and think about how um, it's a scary thing, and, I, and I'm assuming most of you are in your 20s, and it's scary because I think the way I see it, like you went through high school, you ha- and what did you do? You knew, like get, get good grades, all right, do well in all, all the standardized tests, follow the formula, go to, high, go to college, follow the formula, do something, after graduation. <laughs> There's no formula. <laughs> I did formula. I still don't know how to pay rent, and so, so there's a scary part about it because now you're forging your own path. But the other part of it is that you're also forging your own path. And I think you're developing, you're making friends out of your family, like you're you're choosing your family in this way versus like if the family that you were born with that you may or may not like as much as you would like to like, um, and so. Think about this time as a way to think about what you're interested in and try to pursue that, but also pair up with people who can support you. Because I can tell you, it's a lot easier trying to, it's, it's a lot easier being afraid of things when someone's also with you
1: um,
0: than it is being afraid alone. I mean, in both situations, I'm still poor, but one of them thinks I'm funny. And the other one, like I just like it really sad in this room. final slide. Yeah. <laughs> so, those were our many topics. Thank you. We know if you have questions, please have them afterwards. Um, follow us on the socials, uh, the Twitters, and the the Face page. And SoundCloud is where you can find our podcast. <laughs> I know, it's like, we're the older ones, so like you guys are like, theoretically the more savvy ones, but I'm still like trying to do this. Liz and Zion, if you have questions, you can email us at Liz and Zine. Um, Subscribe on iTunes, so if you get enough subscriptions, they can actually put like a rating on there, and right now, we don't have that,
1: so.
0: <laughs> no shame. No, it's not shame. <laughs> it's like something to look forward to, but you would make some people so happy just to click a button, it's really crazy. But anyway, thank you, (laughs) thank you so much.